Please remain standing if you are able for the reading of God's word. We're reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. This is about the Magi. This morning we're going to focus on how it's about Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When King Herod was disturbed, so was the city. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down to worship him. Then they opened their presents, their treasures, and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would address us in this word and let us realize how much we are naturally like Herod. And we're threatened by one who would call on us to follow him because we want to be our own king. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of the time at Christmas, when we turn to this passage, we talk about the Magi and how they came to worship Jesus. It's it's an example, a foretaste of the Great uh, Great Commission, where the gospel would go out to all the world. These were Magi from the region of Babylon, where Daniel and the uh, other Israelites in exile had witnessed to them. There was some semblance of, of faith Those who remembered Daniel and the promises made and the Magi came to worship Jesus. Just for one of the key questions there about the star that led them, I just propose to you as a a point of thinking that this star was not some astronomical sign. How can you follow an astronomical sign that moves? Uh, Is it a planet that moves? And how do you tell where it stands over? It depends on where you are, north, south, east, or west, or which direction that would lead you. I believe it's much more like the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, where the very presence of God led the people of Israel through the wilderness in the Old Testament. And God in his glorious presence was revealing himself to these magi from the east. And they came to Jerusalem, the star didn't lead them all the way, and asked Herod the king, where is he to be born, this newborn king? And they told him in Bethlehem. And they followed and found the star, the the glory of the Lord, leading them to rest over the place where Jesus was. That's the story of the Magi. And it it is inspiring. We are called to worship Christ in that way. But there's a drama here that we often don't focus on that's very realistic for us. It's easy for us to come to church at Christmas time and focus on the nice things and it's kind of an escape. Then we go back to our own world that can be filled with uh, suffering, with illness, with conflict, with all sorts of problems, and we turn on the TV and it gets worse. Our world is not this ideal place. So is, is Christmas worship something you come to to escape for a little while and then you go back to the real world? No. In this passage, God is sending his son into the real world, a world that is in rebellion against him, and Herod the king seeks to kill Jesus. There's much that we can learn from this passage about Herod's threat. Herod's threat, and there are three aspects to Herod's threat. The first is the the threat behind Herod. Herod is an unwitting stooge in a greater drama, a spiritual drama that is going on that I want to spend much of our time on this morning. It's the big picture. As far as Herod was concerned, he was unaware of that. Another spiritual dynamic. He wasn't thinking, oh, this is a big cosmic battle between God and the the devil and the forces of evil, and we're going to stop that Messiah from coming into the world. Herod wasn't thinking that. He was thinking, newborn king? It was a threat to Herod. And because it was a threat to Herod, and his response was, my throne, my life, I'm not giving it up, he sought to kill Jesus. We can identify with Herod there. That's our old nature. That's the way we're born. It is the work of God to give us a new nature that would respond by receiving Christ as Savior and as Lord. Otherwise, we just want our own way, our own life. And that old nature wakes up with us all the time and because there was a threat to Herod then we look at the threat of Herod what he tried to do first let's look at the threat behind Herod 
Our theme this Christmas is, For unto us a child is born. Magi from the east had come to ask of Herod where to bring their royal gifts to newborn king. Herod feigned to show regard, but in his heart was murdering the promised newborn son of God. Satan tried through Herod's sword to kill the woman's seed before he could fulfill that ancient word, her seed would crush the serpent's head and save us from our sin and death. But Joseph and Mary, by God forewarned, escaped to Egypt with God's son and saved the child that to us was born. This short narrative, we see a great drama going on behind Herod that Herod was not aware of. There's a, a drama between God and Satan and his forces. This fall, I've had the privilege of teaching one of the women's Bible studies. This message will actually reflect two of them. Denise Maddox has been teaching from garden to glory, beginning of the Bible to the end. We're going to look at the beginning of the Bible and the end. And I've had the privilege of teaching that last book in the Bible, Revelation. And this last Wednesday, we were coming to the end of our study, and it was a thrill to get to the new heaven and the new earth, the people of God coming down from heaven and God dwelling with them. There'll be no more weeping, crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away, and it was such, such a blessing At the beginning of the study, there's a promise of blessing to those who would read this book. Christians have by and large lost that blessing because we get into arguments over how to interpret Revelation. But isn't it such a blessing to come to the end and see our future? In the glorious new heaven and new earth where we are with God and he is with us. And as I looked at that, it just was a great uplift for me and I needed it this week. I needed it this week because Thursday night I ended up, we, we experienced some of the fallen world this week, not in big dramatic ways, but just those, those little tedious ways that we always seem to experience. On Thursday night I came down with that stomach bug with fever that knocked me out. And, and yesterday Mary came down with it with fever and she had had kind of the stomach troubles before. I think she tried to take care of me and get out and do things on Friday and she relapsed into fever yesterday. So we're just kind of limping along this week and that's on top of uh, Marty's and Meredith's Mary Margaret hurting her knee and ending up in the ER and all of that kind of stuff and we had at Thursday at lunch our Christmas staff party at our house so everybody came over you can pray for the staff of this church because they're all exposed although I think we had a common exposure before because there were three people that could not come to the party because they had the stomach bug Pray that Mike doesn't get it through tonight's concert. After that, he's on his own. No, uh, that's right. You're good for it for now. Um, we're just struggling along in this fallen world. But God blessed me with a dream last night. Now, I don't believe that God is revealing scripture through dreams. It's not that kind of thing. God created us with a period of time at night that he used in scripture to reveal himself to Joseph and to Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph in the New. He would speak to him in, in dreams that God would reveal himself. But this was an ordinary dream where our minds organize. If you miss that REM period at night and you miss the dream time, you get really crazy. God gave us a subconscious that kind of works through things. 
Have you meditated on the Word of God enough so that it has seeped down into your subconscious and every now and then just wells up with the thoughts of, of God and the glories to come and you have those good dreams? I still have those crazy pastor dreams. The, the crazy pastor dreams are when you, you're preaching and then you realize you forgot to put on an important item of clothing. <laughs> Maybe any at all. And you hope nobody notices. And the dream is just that long agony of, please, Lord, don't let anybody notice. And you hide behind the pulpit really good. Or you're preaching and people just stop paying attention. They start walking in and out, joking, throwing balls to each other, just (laughs) completely lose control. I have those dreams. I still have those dreams. There are anxiety dreams that work out from the subconscious. Because we live in the fallen world and we struggle in this fallen world. I'm sure you have some of those dreams. But last night, God gave me a really weird dream. But somehow, after a week, we just kind of struggled along. What a blessing it was. Instead of having all those pastoral anxiety dreams, I believe that I dreamed that Mary and I were going on vacation. And we stopped somewhere to go to dinner and a movie. And the, the ticket line was sort of like customs at, a, at an airport. It was hard to get through. And uh, we got through, and then I got in where the, the tables were, and the waiter came up, and I didn't have my wallet. And I went back to the, the ticket line, and the wallet was there, and a wad of cash next to it. that It was taken out of the wallet, but everybody was good and honest, and what a blessing that the cash was all there. And as I looked at all my $1 bills, <laughs> there was a $1,000 bill in it. And I knew in the dream, without, without understanding, it was a gift from my mother. And I knew in my dream that my mother was in heaven. And I knew in my dream that I couldn't figure out how my mother in heaven could give me a $1,000 gift. But what a blessing it was from heaven. And I woke up. The only problem is it was 5 o'clock in the morning. I was thinking, oh, rats, it's the middle of the night. It's short night's sleep. But... I loved having that dream, and I thought, you know, God breaks through with the glories of heaven into the fallenness of this world. And I loved it that that hope of heaven had seeped into my subconscious enough that I could have this very strange and weird dream. When we look at the big picture, the big story, we see a spiritual conflict going on, but Christ is the victor. You know that that's the story of your life. As I taught in Revelation and came to the end, I think that the thrill of Wednesday morning teaching that seeped into my dream and emerged in that strange way. I thought about Romans chapter 12 already uh, preparing in the week because Romans chapter 12 tells the story of this great uh, spiritual battle. Now I'm going to spend much of our time on Romans chapter 12 because Herod is the very expression of the spiritual conflict that is described in these apocalyptic terms in Romans chapter 12. If you want to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to it, we'll actually spend more time explaining uh, these passages than the passage in Matthew 2. We're familiar with the Magi story. I want you to see how Herod is the very fulfillment of this passage. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the, in the heaven. This is twelve chapter one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sign, with the moon under her feet, and a crowd of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant 
and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Right there at the end of the Bible, it reminds us of the beginning when God in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3, after Satan had tempted Eve and Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, God cursed the serpent. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, who's the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This was supposed to be the day of Satan's victory. But he was like Alabama. I'm sorry, Auburn. Yeah, sorry, Alabama fans. Great disappointment. Head of the world. Satan was on top. And God says, you're going to be lowest of all. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, to tell you the truth, it's a pretty serious thing to have a venomous snake strike your heel. Your daughter-in-law, Sarah, at Covenant College, actually, in the dark, was walking along a path and was bitten on the heel by a copperhead. It was no fun. She ended up having to go through it. Copperheads are not poisonous enough to kill you, but they're a pain. That was no fun. But the death blow was that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. God was saying from the beginning, and you're familiar with this. This is uh, just basic for us as Christians. The story of the Bible is how the woman's seed would come into the world and bring salvation. It was a promise of Christ. And the New Testament is about how the woman's seed has come and conquered. That's the big story. And so when we turn to Revelation and we find this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain. She was about to give birth. It's talking about the woman's seed coming into the world. Now, to understand the woman in Revelation, think about another image that God uses to explain his relationship with us through Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Has anybody ever thought that there's going to be some individual in the future that's the bride of Christ? That that's the fulfillment of that description? No, nobody thinks that. We know that that's a description of the church. That we, it's not a fairy tale. It's the absolute truth, but it's a composite personification of the church. And it explains how Christ loves his bride, the church, and gave his life for her to redeem us. We're all a part of that church. We as individuals are part of that corporate identity that we are the bride of Christ. In the same way, this woman, it's another image. Don't mix the metaphors. Okay? No one metaphor can describe God's relationship to us in full. This woman is representing the people of God. From Eve, to whom the promise was given, through all those generations, down to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the woman, the people of God, God will call to himself, and through them, he will send the woman's seed, the woman's descendant, the woman's offspring, the woman's son, into the world. And in Revelation, the woman is described as a single person. This is the the people of God. You see some reflection of that with 12 stars on her head. That reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. But see the next sign. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon 
with seven horns, seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. This is the serpent that's supposed to be the lowest of the beast. He seems to have grown. He seems to be mighty. This is the great spiritual conflict. The seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns represent kingdoms before and kingdoms after. We can't go into all the detail of that. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Is not Herod the pinpoint, the, the point of that spear? He is the one in the period of history when Jesus was born that Satan used Herod to try to devour the child the moment it was born. That's how this passage applies to our passage in Matthew that we're so familiar with. But you see the spiritual drama that's going on. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Iron scepter is not an image of cruelty. It's an image of absolute sovereignty. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This passage doesn't go into the saving work of the Messiah. It just talks about the victory of the Messiah, how Satan will not win. He can't stop Jesus. The woman fled into the desert, fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. We can't explain all the apocalyptic imagery, but the women are the people of God. We still live in the wilderness. We still live in the fallen world until Christ comes again. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with them, with him. We tend to think of this passage as before creation, the fall of Satan, and then Satan is a fallen angel. But this is not describing that time in history. This is uh, describing the time when the son, the seed of the woman, is born into the world, that Satan falls from heaven. How did he have a place in heaven before that? It wasn't because of his innocence. He was already a fallen angel. He rebelled against God. He was a sinful, malicious, evil spirit. But he had a place in heaven, as his name is called, as Satan means, accuser. And just as he was in heaven before God over Job, accusing Job, he's in heaven accusing God's people, saying, You are holy. These people are sinful. You must punish their sin, or you will no longer be holy. And that was a righteous accusation. Because it's true, God is holy and must punish sin. And we are sinful. That's the great spiritual drama going on. And Satan had a place in heaven as our accuser, and it was a just accusation. And yet God was not punishing the sins of Abraham, of David, of the saints who truly put their trust in him. The Bible tells us he was letting their sins go unpunished. And it was confounding Satan. It was infuriating Satan. He was accusing up there. And then God sent his son into the world. Let's go on and see what happens. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Wow, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. It wasn't by 
uh, our military strength. It wasn't by you know, even the strength of the angels. It was by the blood of the Lamb that Satan was cast out of heaven. Why? Because he could no longer accuse. He could no longer say, you're a holy God, you must punish their sin. Because God could say, I have punished their sin in my own son. Get thee away from me, Satan. You no longer have an accusation. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. There were people who died for this glorious truth in the first generation of Christians, even to the present generation of Christians. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. You know, a snake's head, when you cut it off, can still bite. Satan is defeated, but he's still active. And he is, this is the one time that you can say this about this context, that it is not swearing or cursing. He is mad as hell. It's literally true. And he knows his time is short and he's going to do as much damage and create as much misery as he can. There's a great spiritual battle going on for you, for us. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman, the church, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings as of an eagle, which a man up with wings as eagles, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, in this fallen world, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. You are safe if you belong to Christ. No one can snatch you from his hand. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. Oh, that's the security we have. That's the drama. The more we realize the big conflict, the greater value we have in the security we have in Christ. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman at the church and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan cannot beat the church. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he's still mad. And he goes off to pick off as many as he can. And he's at war with you. You are safe in Christ. But there is this great drama of this great spiritual battle going on. Here's what's interesting. Herod was a key player in it. He is the, on the front lines. He is the one who sought to kill the baby Jesus. But he's totally unaware of the spiritual battle. He's thinking just in earthly terms. He hears the message from the Magi. There's a newborn king. Where is he? And Herod's thinking, what? This is my throne. I'm not giving it up. But he knows how to connive. And he tells the Magi, when did that, he asked them, when did the star appear? And he tells them, come back when you find him and report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's not thinking about any great spiritual battle. He's not thinking he's taking sides in any way except his own side. He's saying, it's my throne and I'm not giving it up. You know what? You and I are a lot like him. Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew presents the gospel in this way using the two circles 
that represent the two basic kinds of life. And there's a throne in each of our lives. And in one life, self is on the throne. We are our own king. How do we express that? Oh, we don't go around and say, I'm my own king. We might say that, who knows? But we say, I want my way. This is my life. These are my needs. All of those expressions are saying, I am my own king. And I'm not giving it up for anybody. Even Christ. Do you identify with this? Whose side are you on? Now, if you've dismissed all of this, all oh, that's just ridiculous. That's just superstitious. That's, that's spiritual stuff. You know, we live in the material world and that's all we see. Yeah, you, you're not even a Christian. Because you're not even allowing room for God who created everything. If you're just measuring everything by the material world. But if you are a Christian, it's still complicated for you. If you've given your life to Christ and you've received him, as he said before, earlier in worship, that old nature wakes up with us every day. That nature says, I want my way. This person has hurt me. It's not right. I need to get back. I need to protect myself. How can you say love my enemy? How can you say forgive as I've been forgiven? Well, the Christian should have a, two natures, a new nature to battle that old nature. We're to put to death the flesh, put to death the old nature every day. Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We know that battle. And we should be able to recognize when we're being like Herod, saying, Wait a minute. I feel threatened by this. Even though I'm secure in Christ, I feel threatened by this because I still want my way. I'm threatened by this disease. Not just with the insecurities of the loss. It is grief. Death is an enemy. We weep over it as did Jesus. But that's different than weeping with the hope we have of eternal life in Christ. Than it is getting angry with God and dismissing him. Getting angry with others because we're not getting what we want. Do you identify with Herod? In that way, at those times, do you feel the threat to yourself at times? How, do we, how did Herod respond? By bringing a threat of his own. He sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill that baby. Imagine if you were Joseph and Mary, and you were warned in the dream that, that Herod sought to kill your baby. We do experience the threat of this world. This world is not neutral about God. The world at times, praise God for the place and time in which we live, where we have lots of freedoms. But it's not human nature to recognize that those who belong to Christ and are following him are just nice. Because we're saying there's a God and he calls sin to account. He's provided forgiveness for sin, but you need to surrender to Christ. And the world responds the way Herod does and say, we don't want to hear that. And so we hate the messenger. That's the natural state of things, that the world would be at odds. Jesus said, if the world hates me, he'll hate you too. We are to respond, not in kind, but with the love of God that he showed for us in Christ. So we're not to, to get down to that level, but we shouldn't expect just for the world to always affirm. We feel the threat of Herod in the world around us as the world would reject Christ. So it will reject us. Are we willing to stand for that?
Are we willing to, to just be Christ's? This, there's glory ahead for you in that. Now, for Mary and Joseph, it was one thing. God warned them. They had no home. They had to flee to Egypt. After Egypt, they came back and they couldn't go back to Bethlehem. They went back to Nazareth, where they were from in the first place. A real backwoods place. They didn't have this glorious life on earth. But they had the Son of God growing up in their home. We may not have a glorious time in this world but you're the temple of the holy spirit you are a child of god and you've got an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you do you see that big picture that the one who would accuse you has been hurled down and that you have a glory ahead of you do you feel the threat of herod at times and how do you respond last week i asked you to think about what if you were one of the other families in bethlehem where herod did murder the son That's hard to contemplate. Why does God in heaven, who's sovereign, allow such suffering in this fallen world? I don't have the answer to that, except that he's provided for the way us to have victory over this fallen world through the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, I ask you to think of a different application. Suppose you were one of the soldiers sent to Bethlehem to kill the baby. Just suppose that as a young soldier... You went to Bethlehem, and some 33 years later, you're an old soldier that was there when Jesus was nailed to the cross. What might you think? Might you think, I've taken my side. My sin's too great to be forgiven. There is no sin too too great to be forgiven. Perhaps when you've talked about this conflict and everything, it's made you uncomfortable because you think, Why is he talking about this on Christmas? I came for the escape of the nice talk before I go back to the fallen world. And it's made you uncomfortable because you think, I'm not really Christ. I haven't really received him. I am fighting against him. And you think, but even if I would, oh, what I've done. What I've done. That conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no sin too great to be forgiven. Turn to Christ, as did the thief on the cross at the end. He said, Lord, remember me. When you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And your accuser will be hurled down, and he will no longer have an accusation against you because you'll stand in Christ, who has paid for your sin by his blood and gives you his righteousness to make you worthy of heaven to come. I think recognizing the conflict in the Christmas story makes the ending all the better, doesn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of your glory, that it would seep into every level of our consciousness, that even as our anxieties rise to the surface, so would the hope that we have in Christ, the foretaste of the glories of heaven, and that whatever our circumstances are now, if we have been hurt, if we are ill, if we are struggling with provisions, if we are whatever the suffering may be, I pray that you would uh, let us find a, a hope that, in, that is in Christ, that is glorious, that is cosmic, and that cannot be taken away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.